This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're happy to have back with us on the show. Those of you who have been a part of Make It Plain over the years know my guest as no stranger. And uh, But things are a little bit different now. We have talked about some of his scholarly articles. The last time we spoke, he did mention, and I, that might have been before the pandemic even, Professor. Uh, the last time we spoke, he mentioned he was working on this piece of scholarship going into a book, and that has happened. So we congratulate him on that. Just out at the end of March, the book Madison's Militia, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment, we welcome back. Uh, professor of law, soon to be professor of law emeritus at Roger Williams University, Professor Carl T. Bogus. Professor Bogus, how are you? I'm great, Reverend Mark. Thank you for having me back. It is. It's a pleasure to have you back. It's wonderful to have you. I, I, I want to begin this way in that, you know, we're seeing uh, really an, an epidemic of, of mass shootings and gun violence every day, everywhere. There's always a story in the news. Um, I, I've said this aloud. I wonder, I, I want to share with you what I've shared and get your reaction to it and, and using your research. I say to people, I, I wonder if those who advocate uh, for AR-15s, advocate for the Second Amendment, those who don't, who only want to apply thoughts and prayers when these types of mass shootings happen, Professor, I say to myself, I, I wonder, and, and even in Nashville, I was in Nashville during the, the, the Tennessee three in the covenant shooting. I'll be back in Nashville next week. And I've asked, I, I wonder how those who advocate for the second amendment and who watch our young people die every day, I wonder how they would feel if they actually knew and understood that we are losing lives today because of an amendment that wasn't meant for everyone to have an individual right, but rather an amendment that was meant to stop my enslaved ancestors from insurrection. I mean, that, that's what people are, are dying for. What, what, and I've asked that question. What do, you, what do you think about my take on it? He's a professor. I always like to ask questions as a student so he can <laughs> critique me. But what do you think about that? Um, I think I, I, I agree with your take on this, which is 
people have this image that the Second Amendment was some sacred bequest from the founders that has something to do with freedom and liberty. And I think that um, if, there's a, if there's an image that people associate it with, it's the musket in the hands of the Minutemen at Lexington and Concord. And somehow it's, it's resisting tyranny, um, it's somehow vaguely associated with, um, with liberty. If they realized that the amendment had nothing to do with, with um, freedom, it had to do largely with exactly the reverse, slavery, um, they'd have a different attitude to the Second Amendment. So this, the Second Amendment, um, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep in their arms shall not be infringed, was all about keeping an armed militia in order to prevent rebellions and insurrection and the insurrection that the principal author of the Second Amendment, James Madison, was, was concerned with principally with slave insurrection. You, in, in this climate too, ladies and gentlemen, the other reason the book is important, um, and, and he, he is a law professor, but this is a history book. He discloses that in the introduction, much to his credit. In this climate of history being a resistance to history being taught in many schools, particularly um, history of our history, African-American history, uh, excellent research in the book about uh, our enslaved ancestors insurrection. We don't know about that a lot. That's not taught. Um, there's still sort of this image of docility, but, but you go into great detail. Uh, and, and if you could encapsulate that for us, professor, just how prevalent insurrections were and how terrified the colonists, colonists were of insurrections. The, the, um, the myth that was perpetrated by slave owners themselves back in the day was that um, slaves in the American South were happy, content, and docile. That was the myth. And um, a fellow named Herbert Applecker uh, wrote a book, um, was actually a, doc a doctoral thesis at Columbia, um, in which um, this was in the 1940s, in which he identified 250 slave revolts or slave conspiracies that hadn't yet ripened into a full revolt but was, but was extinguished, or rumors of slave revolts. And that shattered that myth, the fact that, that um, 
somebody was able to identify through largely newspaper accounts at the time, 250 either actual revolts or um, potential revolts. And that changed everything. And historians looked more deeply into um, slavery. And uh, slaves were anything but happy, content, and docile. Um, the largest slave revolt prior to the writing of the Second Amendment, and that's what I focus on, what did James Madison and the First Congress have in their minds when they wrote the Second Amendment? The largest one took place in 1739 in Stono, South Carolina, where somewhere between 60 and 100 slaves uh, broke into a, a store, uh, killed the white men in there, uh, seized the weapons and the ammunition, and, and uh, uh, began to march down the road and invade plantations and invade and kill um, the, the owners of the plantations. Um, that rebellion was um, extinguished in a battle with the militia uh, by the end of that day. But that terrified the South. They realized that um, that slaves could collaborate in a revolt and that they were could be determined enough uh, to revolt knowing, knowing that they'd be killed. They weren't going to get away with it. Uh, they would be killed, but they would die free. And that, and that slaves were disgruntled enough and determined enough to do that. Um, in the Caribbean, there were a series of slave revolts, and I, I thought particularly about the one in Jamaica, um, that the, the British colonists and the British Navy and, uh, could not extinguish and um, uh, actually had to make a deal with the slaves um, that, they, that they, would, they could set up communities in the, in the jungle and in the hills um, because they really, they really were not able to put down an insurrection and the slaves almost took all of Jamaica. Yeah. Later on, they did take. Later on, they did take all of Haiti. But um, uh, slaves engaged in many different acts of rebellion, including um, poisoning their masters and and. Um, uh, splitting their throat in the night, presumably. Um, so the fact of the matter is that the South lived under constant terror of slave revolt in many areas, including Eastern Virginia, where James Madison, um, George Mason, um, 
George Washington in, um, lived, um, slaves constituted a majority of the population. So you had a, you had a white minority um, attempting to control an enslaved black majority and the principal instrument of control was the militia, which they believed needed to be armed. You, you chronicle, and folks, again, we don't know this, but they knew it back then. Um, Professor Bogus writes, historians have, and, and he mentions the Aptheca book. I would encourage people to check that out as well, American Negro Slave Revolts. But just before that, he writes this, Professor Bogus. Historians have identified 579 rebellions or attacks on slave ships or auxiliary boats with almost 80% occurring between 1726 and 1800. These revolts were getting a lot of attention during James Madison's day. In fact, newspapers then were frequently publishing stories about shipboard revolts during the 1760s and 1770s. You also, now just to kind of set this, this, this context too, um, I, I believe, I'm gonna go back and find the quote, but, but I'll ask you the question. I believe Patrick Henry was also quoted as, as talking about in your book, um, just how close the enslaved population was to the white population in Virginia in, in specific. So you had, let's say, and I'm, 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 I'm gonna pull it up, I don't have the exact number, but I, I think he was quoted as, by you as saying that there were uh, approximately 300 some odd thousand white Virginians to over 200, 50,000 some odd enslaved people. So that wasn't comforting either because folks, they, they were enslaving our ancestors almost to an equal number. So it was no, if, if there was going to be a revolt, it was not going to be a small thing. Well, they were, they were certainly terrified of a large scale revolt and they had seen it in the, in the Caribbean. They had seen the potential for it in Stono south carolina um and and the stono incident is interesting particularly because of the relationship between the militia and slave control so shortly before that revolt occurred um south carolina enacted a law that required militiamen to carry weapons, muskets, with them to church on Sunday. And the reason for that was they were worried that when people went to church and they were not on the plantation, that that might be an opportune time for slave revolt. And they wanted white men armed. And what happened when the um, Stono Rebellion occurred, really by chance, um, the lieutenant governor of South Carolina was riding along and saw it. Saw that, saw, you know, up to 100 slaves with banners that said liberty and beating on drums and calling on other slaves and plantations to join them. Saw that, of course, was incredibly alarmed and went to local church and who was there but armed white men 
and they went to other churches and 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 collected the militia. And so the the armed militia was able to assemble incredibly quickly and meet the growing rebellion uh, quickly in battle and um, and 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 defeat the um, defeat the rebels. It was costly on both sides. Um, uh, about 60 militiamen and slave owners um, were killed by the end of the day. Um, of course, the slaves were put to death. Uh, those that those that were that were not defeated in the battle and escaped were hunted down and, and killed either back on their plantations or elsewhere. Um, but but the incident tells us something about not only the potential of slave revolt, but the control system, the reliance on the militia to, first of all, deter slave revolts through slave patrols every night, um, and also being ready to extinguish revolts if they occur. Uh, I, I found the quote. It was actually not Henry, uh, Patrick Henry. It was Edmund Randolph in Virginia. I think he might have been the governor or something. He was the go- He was then the governor. Listen to this, folks. Uh, there's another circumstance that renders us more vulnerable. He's talking about Virginians back then. Are we not weakened by the population of those we hold in slavery? The day may come when they may make impression upon us. Gentlemen who have been long accustomed to the contemplation of the subject think there is a cause of alarm in this case. The number of people compared to that of whites is an immense proportion. Their number, meaning the enslaved, amounts to 236,000, that of whites only to 352,000. Um, again, speaking to the irrationality of the institution, you're gonna bring in as many people as you have a population and then try to keep them down, duh. Um, but but Professor Bogus, here's the million dollar question. I know many are watching and listening, so wait a minute now, that, is that really what the militia was for? Not only is the presumption of the Second Amendment was for an individual right to keep and bear arms. That's what the Supreme Court decided in Heller, which was false. Uh, there's also this, this mythical fantasy story that it was to be ever ready for an invasion of another country because of what the militia had done so successfully during the Revolutionary War. That is not the case at all. And you also chronicle uh, very thoroughly how ineffective the militia was so ineffective, there was really no way during the debates anybody could make a credible argument that, you know, we need a militia for this other reason to, to act as if it is as effective as the Continental Army. It was not. So the militia proved to be a complete bust during the Revolutionary War. I think people aren't aware of that. Um, the only real militia victories were Lexington and Concord. And uh, you could count Bunker Hill, depending upon uh, whether you count a victory based on fatalities inflicted or ground held. But after that, the militia achieved nothing. And in fact, in battle, often, more often than well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say more often than not, because militia did in the north at times um stand their ground, but very often 
militia threw down their weapons and fled without firing a single shot. That happened in um, uh, Battle of Camden in South Carolina, where um, uh, Virginia and I think North Carolina militia themselves outnumbering the um, British forces, but supported by a large contingent of Continental Army. Um, when they saw the British advancing on them, uh, threw their weapons and their equipment away without firing a single, single shot and fled to the, to the great disgrace of um, their commander who wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson saying, I, I recognize militia will not do. And it actually became Continental Army doctrine in the South with militia forces um, to have kind of a carrot and a stick to, to encourage them to fire maybe one or two shots before leaving the battlefield. Um, what um, uh, General Daniel Morgan came up with is he said to the militia, look, we're gonna, I'm going to put you in the front. I'm going to ask you to just fire one or two shots as the, as the British advance and then do an orderly withdrawal behind the Continental troops. And if you only fire one or two, we're happy with you. Just do an orderly withdrawal. Because in Camden, when they fled, they actually knocked over Continental troops as they raced through their ranks of the Continental troops. Um, that worked to a minor degree. To a minor degree, uh, some militia did fire two shots. Many, some fired one shot. Maybe some fired none. Uh, when Daniel Morgan um, discussed this with uh, his commander Nathaniel Green, as Green was about to face battle, uh, he recommended um, to uh, Green that Green surround the militia with Continental forces and. Order the Continental troops to fire the first militiamen to both. That that's what was necessary to kind of keep militiamen in place. Green didn't actually do that, but he did do what Morgan did. You can just fire one shot or two shots and do an orderly withdrawal, and the Continental forces will stand their ground. Um, but that was kind of the best of the militia, and um, it's not that. Rising in many ways because it's rigorous and hard training that turns a, a, a human being into a soldier. Being a soldier is not a natural thing. And that's what it is. And that was the difference between the Continental Army or any professional army and a militia. Uh, the army was trained over periods of weeks and months and um, the militia had almost no training and then going up against a, a, a trained and even more well-trained British army the yeah. army of America was new uh, as a matter of fact uh, Patrick Henry one of the leading spokespersons he's Virginia George Mason all these guys um, they also, too, um, were, weren't they radicalized by the other reality 
chapter two, Lord Dunmore of the British had promised uh, the enslaved uh, freedom if they fought on their side. Yes. Uh, and some Northern states with the endorsement, I think Rhode Island, maybe that was yes. the only one, I don't know, with the endorsement even of General George Washington invited the enslaved to join uh, the Continental ranks. So, so uh, the, the Southern states weren't, and this is before the Civil War, folks, so this is brewing. They weren't excited about any of the enslaved having guns. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, uh, guns were, were complete contraband and prohibited um, to slaves, whether at war or not at war. Um, and the South invested enormous resources in slave patrols conducted everywhere in the South, except in North Carolina, uh, you know, by the militia. When I say not North Carolina, by the militia, of course, it was, it was militia then, even in North Carolina, who, who were doing the, um, uh, the slave patrols, but it, was, um, it wasn't militia officers that were necessarily in charge of it. But in Virginia and South Carolina and, and Georgia, um, and other areas, um, the militia were in charge of slave control, uh, patrols. And um, every, every night, um, slave patrollers would go out uh, to, to make sure that slaves were they were supposed to be, that they were not where they were not supposed to be, that they were not going between plantations, that they were staying where they were supposed to be, and conducted searches to ensure they did not have guns, they did not have weapons, they did not have reading material because they were also prohibited from learning to read. Um, another, another way of keeping them powerless. So, um, so the militia was essential to deterring revolts because slaves knew every night the slave patrollers were out, armed in groups. Um, they were necessary as a deterrent. And then if, if a, a revolt happened, they were necessary to, uh, to suppress it. It was, it was, Reverend Mark, a successful system. It, it, did, it did preserve slavery. And, um, they fully understood how essential a militia was to their success as slave owners. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Back to Patrick Henry. Yes. He pretty much led the argument for there to be a Second Amendment for this purpose. The, the man who most famously said, give me liberty, give me death. You also uh, very well uh, describe him as an orator, an enormous amount of, of influence and sway he held at the time. But we know him for give me liberty, give me death. We don't know him for saying we need to keep these guns, y'all, to stop these insurrections. Yes. So Henry was um, indisputably the most powerful politician in Virginia at the time. Uh, he had been the state's first governor. Um, he um, uh, was elected governor again later. Um, he was considered to have the power to control the uh, the state assembly, the legislature. And the origins of the of of the uh, what what became the Second Amendment. Uh, I believe occurred in Richmond, Virginia, in June of um, of uh, 1788. Uh, and what happened was a year earlier, the founders had come out of Independence Hall, and uh, they presented a proposed constitution. Um, Supposedly, a woman on the street said, uh, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, Dr. Franklin, what kind of government have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. But the Constitution required by its own terms um, that nine states ratify it at special ratifying conventions. And in June of 1788, Virginia had its ratifying convention. Delegates had to be especially elected. And I think it's one of the most dramatic episodes in American history and also one of the least known episodes in American history. Someday someone will do a movie about this because it was a, a, um, an incredibly dramatic showdown. Eight states had ratified, but it did not appear at that time that if Virginia did not ratify that there was likely to be a ninth state. Um, Rhode Island was absolutely not going to ratify uh, New York was controlled by an anti-federalist um, governor, um, Clinton, and was considered, and, and people believed would not ratify and there were problems in both New Hampshire and North Carolina with ratification. So it kind of came down to Virginia. And besides, if Virginia did not ratify and join the Union, could the Union survive? It was the largest state, the most populous state, and it was geographically right in the center. So it was a showdown between the Federalists who wanted a strong federal government and wanted to ratify. And they were led by James Madison, who was who knew the Constitution better than anyone else and had been probably the most influential delegate to the Constitutional Convention a year earlier or certainly one of the most influential. And he was supported by uh, Edmund Randolph, who you mentioned, who was the sitting governor uh, by. Um, Henry Lighthorse, Harry uh, Lee, who was a hero of the um, 
uh, of the Revolutionary War. Um, and um, by others. And on the other side, uh, the anti-federalists who feared a strong national government and were wanted to preserve the power of Virginia uh, were led by Patrick Henry, who, as you mentioned, was considered at the time the greatest American orator. And George Mason was kind of considered the brains of the anti-federalists, the intellectual of the anti-federalists. And it was, it was quite a showdown between the two of them, between these two groups. And Henry, in many different ways, said, James Madison, you told us you wrote a constitution that does not give the federal government the power to abolish slavery. And we agree with you. You haven't done that. They don't have the power to abolish slavery. There's a, there's a encoded slave compact in the Constitution. Um, but here's what you did do. For the first time, you have given the federal government the lion's share of power over the militia. Up until now, the militia have been the creature of state government, the Virginia militia controlled by Virginia, the South Carolina militia controlled by South Carolina. But now you've written a constitution in which Congress, the National Congress, has the power to organize the militia any way it sees fit, to arm the militia, and to, and to, and to create discipline for the militia. That is the rules and regulations governing the militia. And all we're left with is the, is the power to appoint officers or train the militia in accordance with the discipline established by Congress. By giving the federal government the power to arm the militia, you have also implicitly given them the power to disarm the militia. And they'll do it. They'll do it because abolitionist fever is growing in the North. And you have given them the power to undermine our slave system by disarming our militia. And Madison said, no, 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 no. Look, the power is concurrent. If the federal government does not disarm, uh, doesn't arm our militia, we can arm our militia. And normally, Madison would not have lost kind of a point of law to uh, Patrick Henry, even though Henry was a lawyer and Madison wasn't. And this Madison was, was brilliant when it came to governmental structure. But Madison wasn't actually particularly healthy at that particular week. And um, Henry ridiculed. And we, we, you can kind of read the words and, Imagine the great orator and how he was able to deliver these remarks. And he ridiculed Madison. You got a constitution that says you doled out explicitly some powers to the federal government, some powers to the state government. And now you're telling me all of that doesn't matter? Both sides can do both? Congress has the power to arm and presumably disarm the militia, but we can do it. We've got the power to appoint officers, but now they're telling me all these powers are concurrent. So I guess 
Congress can also appoint officers. And he just ridiculed Madison. And I'm sure Madison thought, well, I'd like to fix that. If that's a problem, I'd like to fix it. And then when he came to write a Bill of Rights, which he had, which he basically had to do to save his political career because Patrick Henry was attempting to destroy Madison's political career after this convention, um, this gave him an opportunity to fix this this problem, whether it was a real problem or or a imagined problem by Henry, it had political power. And so he couldn't say the states have the power to arm the militia because that would have contradicted what what the Constitution said. And the states didn't actually arm their militia generally. What they did was simply pass laws and say, militiamen will bring weapons with them when called to muster. So here's the Second Amendment again. And now, we, you know, when people hear it after this background, it frequently they have a, a different understanding of it. Yeah. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep in bronze and not be infringed. The idea being, well, the militia can arm itself. The people can arm itself and the states can have an arm. And the key word there is security. Security. They tried. There was a, someone trying to. Some, there was a motion to change that to defense of the free state, which was defeated. Everybody understood this was about internal security and not defending the country against invasion, because the militia were not up to that. Isn't it true that ratif- in order for Virginia to ratify, Madison had to make the promise? for this Second Amendment, for this provision. That was the only way that they would go along with it, right? I don't know that he made the promise um, at, at, at Richmond. He, in his, in his um, congressional um, contest against James Madison, he and, uh, I mean, uh, James Monroe, he and Monroe went against each other for congressional seat. Um, after Henry had gotten the state legislature to appoint two other people, anti-federalists, to the U.S. Senate. Um, To win that election, Madison promised to write a a Bill of Rights. And that's when he that's when he he made that promise. And. when he when he effectuated that, when he got to the first Congress and, and wrote the Bill of Rights, this this gave him the opportunity to to correct this alleged deficiency and to ensure that the South could have an armed militia, regardless of what Congress decided. Uh, folks, I do want to lift you know one of the the most salient Madison quotes at that time, seventeen eighty eight. If the country be invaded, a state may go to war. I'm sorry, Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry's quote: If the country be invaded, a state may go to war, but cannot suppress slave insurrections under this new constitution. If there should happen an insurrection of slaves, the country cannot be said to be invaded. They cannot therefore suppress it without the interposition of Congress. Congress and Congress only can call forth the militia. That was what he felt was the ambiguous language. And 
you know, there was a provision, I guess, some conversation about invasion, but Patrick Henry said, well, if slaves revolt, that's not technically an invasion. So there needs to be um, some level of protection. And that's, that's what they got. Uh, yeah, he made every, he and George Mason made every argument about a, in, in, a disarmed, enfeebled militia um, any way they could. Um, the idea that, that Congress could disarm the militia. At one point, uh, one of them said, suppose uh, uh, the federal government takes Georgia's militia and marches it in New Hampshire. The the idea was the same thing. They wouldn't have they, Georgia wouldn't have a militia. What would happen? What would happen without a militia in the state? So it, it, he he raised many arguments, some of which had merit, some of which probably had no merit. But they, he was he was a great orator and, and awfully skilled at fear mongering. And the South was the South was just terrified of um, any interference with their necessary instrument of slave control. Um, there was even in, in chapter six, folks, uh, uh, the militia war in the South. Uh, Madison even wrote at one point, if American Britain should come to a hostile rupture, I'm afraid an insurrection among the slaves may and will be promoted. And I think somewhere I read in, in, other, in, in other history, you know, Thomas Jefferson, well, I think it was in the Declaration of Independence, where you know he he they raised a level of resentment toward Britain for kind of inciting the enslaved. Yes, I found I think we've seen the Declaration of Independence. Yes, I, I think it is. Yeah. Um, um, uh, uh, Patrick Henry, you write, captured on Virginia's anxiety to drive Virginia further toward the Revolutionary War. People were unlikely to go to war over duties on tea. Henry observed, but quote, tell them of the robbery of the magazine and that the next step will be to disarm them and they will then be ready to fly to arms to defend themselves. Uh, and obviously also the fear of insurrections, what Lord Dunmore was saying. And so folks, th this, this is a very important book. I have been uh, prescribing it to everyone I've come in contact with. I do also think there's a line, you mentioned the patrols, that's where the word patrol comes from. We know that the evolution of the modern day police force uh, began with a militia that was patrolling for us. Yep. All right, so literally folks, so this is the line. Um, what, lastly, Professor Bogus, what, well, first let me say this, you mentioned a movie. <laughs> this is a movie and you have the book now, man. So I hope you all, well, you know, we don't have any writers anymore because they're on strike. Uh, and I support them. <laughs> but if we ever get that back together, here's the, here's the movie, y'all. And, and what better time to give people a real understanding and context? Because everybody keeps, we have a gun culture. This is just how America is. Why is America this way? Other countries around the world, oh, that's just the culture of America. But that language doesn't say that. It says for the security, a well-regulated, and even some of the other state constitutions had even more language about regulation. Um, so the people weren't just going buck wild. They could not have contemplated what we're dealing with today, AR-15s, people going in schools, shooting up kids. That, that as, as bad as they were on slavery, I, I also don't think they could have ever contemplated 
the, the guns being turned inward in this way they are today. The, they couldn't. And one of the reasons is um, the differences in, in guns. So the most popular gun at the time was the musket. And it was uh, a breech-loaded thing. Um, single shot, you would fire one shot. And then it took half a minute to reload it with a, with a second shot. So if you had a musket, you could fire one shot in 30 seconds, two shots in a minute. And with modern semi-automatics, and by the way, all modern guns are semi-automatics, whether they're pistols or, or, or long guns. If fitted with a standard 30-round magazine, can fire 30 rounds in, in 30 seconds or less, and then replace that magazine in two or three seconds with another full magazine and fire another 30 rounds. There is no way that the, that, uh, the, the people at the time of the American founding could conceive of guns being used for mass shootings or mass murders. It was not possible. And it was, as you point out, Reverend Mark, literally inconceivable. Yeah, yeah. Folks, we, we wanted, again, to talk to Professor Bogus. It's not the first time and it won't be the last time, but to introduce the book to you recently published. We hope you will check it out. We hope you will spread the word. We have to. Uh, take this head on and push back against the argument. And and Professor Bogus, I don't know if it was you or someone else. Might have been you, but in some of your research over the years, it seems like I read an article you wrote at one point, where and, and this is important, ladies and gentlemen. Um, the there there's law scholarship, law review scholarship, and you know, in law reviews and legal scholarship, I mean that counts for something. And and sometimes law review and law scholarship influences court decisions and rulings and 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 attorney arguments in cases um from the time of the from the beginning of law reviews being published i think in 1800s to the 1960s there was never a single one that made an argument that the second amendment was right for was was a right for an individual to keep and bear arms that's correct right I, I, did you that i got there from you right Yes. Yeah. I'll credit the I'll credit the uh, Professor Robert Spitzer at the SUNY Cortland. He was the guy who did the original research. I I, I repeated it in uh, he, he wrote an article about that. And I, I repeated it several times that if there ever had been. Something settled on the constitutional law. It was the Second Amendment and it was non-controversial in legal circles that the Second Amendment was related to the militia and only gave the people the right to keep in their arms within the government militia. And all of the federal courts um, agreed with that and all of the legal commentators agreed with that until the 1960s. And starting in the 1960s, the NRA um, uh, began a concerted campaign to attempt to get that changed. But everybody understood that that was how the Second Amendment uh, uh, 
had been intended and was interpreted. And, and the NRA was, was paying legal scholars. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they stood. The, the, the first, some of the first articles were written by actually they paid staff members and then, and then some of those people went out and um, uh, left the NRA staff, but also continued to get grants uh, from the NRA or um, other groups to, uh, to do this, uh, to write articles and books. In closing, Professor, what would you like to see happen in this country with regards to the Second Amendment? I, I have an extreme view. Because of the history you shared, I think it's an obsolete amendment um, for the purposes it was designed for. It's obsolete. We don't need it. This isn't happening anywhere else in the world. Even, even our uh, original colonizer, you look at the, all the hegemonic uh, colonial empires in Britain, folks aren't getting shot up every day like the way here. What do you think should, should happen with the Second Amendment? Should it be repealed? What do we do? So I don't, I, as a political matter, it's impossible to repeal it. At least, at least um, in my lifetime, I, I, I don't see that happening. Um, I don't think it has to be repealed because um, uh, it merely needs to be interpreted the way I believe it was originally intended. Um, and, 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 and the way the Supreme Court had interpreted it prior to 2008. I'm not sure it's completely uh, antiquated because it does it does provide that a state um, has some minimum right to an armed militia to provide for its National Guard, local emergency. If there are riots, if there is a natural disaster resulting from a hurricane, the governor uh, can call up the National Guard. We, Professor, we may have, oh, we may have lost you due to the technology. That's probably getting too, uh, and the conversation is probably getting too real. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll see. The professor, we'll give him a moment and see if he is, if he's able to rejoin us. Um, um, professor, we linger. We'll we'll see if he's able to um, to log back on. But folks, again, I hope you will check out this book. Um, and um, in, in many respects, uh, share it with others. Um, and, and deal with the, with the importance of it, as a matter of fact. Um, we are dying in this country. Uh, because of here we are there we, are, we got him back thank you uh thank you for jumping back on professor that we had a disrupted there that's fine that's that's what technology does uh but but you're right i mean it, it, that's it it really should be 
with regard and apply to the National Guard at this point. That's yes. what makes it useful. Otherwise, it is this other thing and, and the Scalia's decision and the Heller ruling. And, you know, and I, I think if, if people come to recognize what this, the true origins of the Second Amendment, um, a there'll be a cultural shift. Yeah. And the cultural shift will drive both law and politics. Right, right, right. Someone once said, if I could write all the songs, I would not care who could write the laws, meaning it's culture that drives everything else. Right, right. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Madison's Militia. The Hidden History of the Second Amendment and, and great information about the characters in this as well. That's why it will make a great movie. Patrick Henry's disdain for James Madison and, and that continued. James Madison had a tough time uh, even getting elected. Um, Professor Bogus chronicles that. Madison's Militia, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment. Uh, that is your summer reading assignment, everybody. Please read it, it and you will enjoy it. Um, it's very well written and, and it's gripping, a gripping account. Uh, Professor Carl Bogus, soon to be uh, Professor of Law Emeritus at Roger Williams University. Congratulations on that. Congratulations on the book. Uh, as well, Professor Bogus, uh, such an honor as always to have you and to speak with you, okay? Always wonderful talking with you, Reverend Mark. Thank you. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.